Well, if you would, take your Bible, look back to 1 John. 1 John. I've titled this message this morning, Confessing Our Sin. Last week, we had the title and we looked at the truth in 1 John of walking in the light. And then this week, Confessing Our Sin. And I'm going to zero in our time on 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Uh, I want to go quickly, but at the same time, I don't want to miss too much. If you look there, you'll see if we say we have no sin in verse 8, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to open with just a, a quote here by Jerry Bridges. Jerry Bridges said, and I just think it's so true, he said, we, quote, tend to drag up our old sins, that we tend to live under a vague sense of guilt. He said, we are not nearly as vigorous in appropriating God's forgiveness as he is, is, is in extending it. Consequently, instead of living in the sunshine of God's forgiveness through grace, we tend to live under an overcast sky of guilt most of the time. End of quote. And so just as we walk into the text, I wanted to ask you a question this morning. Do you, and you can answer it just individually, do you, as a, a believer, I might say, live in the sunshine of God's forgiveness? Or are you under an overcast of guilt? That's the question. I mean, when we sing grace unmeasured, bound in, you know, and free, are you free? Are you in the sunshine of God's forgiveness? Or would you say as maybe the main component of your life, you're under an overcast of guilt? I mean, if you are, there is hope for you found in the Scriptures in 1 John. And so I turn you now to 1 John chapter 1. And remember that we stated that verse 5 kind of functions as the overarching banner in this section where it says, this is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. That's the main message that God is light. And what John is doing here is he's writing to declare to you what true fellowship looks like. In other words, he's rolling out of one through four, talking about what fellowship looks like, and those who are in fellowship are walking in the light. Now, all of this from 1-6 down through 2-2 is built around, in some ways, three false claims of the Gnostic teachers. There were people in this early church, in this early setting, that were teaching things that were not proper and out of the Scripture. And what John's going to do for us from 1-6 down through 2-2 is state the error that was being propagated, and then what he wants to do is provide us a biblical solution for what true fellowship with God looks like. Now, each of these false claims is led by the statement, if we say. 
So you can see there's some people who are just verbalizing things, and it's a false claim. Look at it in verse 6. John says there, if we say we have fellowship with him. Look at verse 8. There's a second false claim. If we say that we have no sin. That's our subject today. And then look thirdly, a little different. We'll pick it up next week there at verse 10. If we say we have not sinned. So each of these false claims is built around that paradigm of what some people were verbalizing, okay? Then what John's going to do is denounce these false claims as a lie. Look again at the scripture in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, then here it is, we deceive our Cells. And then if you look thirdly at verse 10, it says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Okay? And so what he does here is give the false claims, and then he shows these false claims as a lie. And then what John's going to do is he's going to affirm a true statement, is he not? The true statement and what true biblical theology and here in the text is found in verse 7. Here's the true statement, but if we walk in the light. Here's a second true statement. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins. And then another true statement is in chapter 2 in verse 1. But if anyone does sin. Okay? So he's going to give the false claim. Then he's going to affirm a true statement. Now it doesn't doesn't take long to notice that all of these false claims that are being made are in relation to sin. Uh, Verse 6, you can see it there. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, darkness is just another word for sin. Uh, Secondly, in verse 8, if we say we have no sin. And then thirdly, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned. And so what John's going to go on to do is show how these false teachers misunderstood the nature of God, who is light, and they begin to exchange obedience to God for a lifestyle that either excused sin altogether or actually just denied it. Now, in each of these claims or these false claims, the solution will be made possible through the forgiveness and the death of God's Son. So the cross is preeminent here. In fact, you can see it in verse 7. We looked at it last week. The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Implied in verse 9 that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That being implied in the cross of Christ. And then you'll notice in 2.2, there the cross is mentioned that He is the propitiation for our sins, namely His death. Now, the the message that John proclaims in verse 5 is that God is light and in Him there is no darkness. And we looked at that last week and we said that light is a metaphor for life, eternal life, for truth, the theme of Seven Oaks Camp, thy word is a lamp unto my feet, right, and a light unto my path. And when you see light, it is a metaphor in the scripture for truth, but thirdly, When it says that God is light, it's a metaphor in the Word of God that we looked at that is a metaphor for holiness or purity. So as he begins to develop that theme 
of fellowship with God. He says you cannot have fellowship with God and walk in the darkness. And the fundamental question that we looked at last week is, is your lifestyle consistent with the declaration that God is light? And so we begin to move through the text, and we bracketed the whole section, if you're taking notes, on looking at three important truths on what true fellowship with God looks like. I mean, if you're really in fellowship with God, what does it look like? I mean, remember he's writing here, 1 John 5, 13, that you would know that you have eternal life. Well, how do you know you have eternal life? Well, to have eternal life, you need to be in fellowship with God. Well, then, therefore, what does fellowship with God look like? And we begin last week, and I'll just review it for a moment, that true fellowship with God was walking in the light. In other words, if you're really in fellowship and sharing in common life with God, you are walking in the light. Now, remember to unpack that, we looked at a heresy denounced, and the heresy denounced in verse 6 was to walk in darkness. In other words, you can't claim fellowship with God, but walk as a consistent pattern of life in the darkness. Then we looked at the truth declared. The truth declared, verse 7, is to walk in the light as he himself is in the light. And we said that, that what that means is that you're walking in the sphere of obedience, That because God is light and because God is holy, when you walk into a room in the little theater here, we're under the presence of light. And so when you're walking in the light, you are, if we likened it to walking in the presence of God, walking in obedience to God, to his commandments, and to the scripture. And we noted there, thirdly, that the results described is that you have fellowship with one another And you experience, verse 7, the cleansing from all of our sin. And so there he says that true fellowship, number one, is walking in the light. But I come here to a second um, important aspect of true fellowship with God. It's confessing our sin. So in other words, if you're really in fellowship with God, you not only walk in the light, But secondly, verse 8 and 9, you will confess your sin. And what I want to do is look at it in the same format. There's a heresy, if you will, denounced, okay? Then there's going to be a truth described, and then there's going to be results that follow, okay? How can we understand what, what this is saying here? Look first, under true fellowship with God, confessing our sin, the heresy denounced. Look at verse 8. John says there, if we say that we have no sin. Stop there just for a moment. Let me explain here the heresy that was being spewed forth by these false teachers, Gnostic teachers. They were claiming not only that they walked with God, but they were walking in the darkness. Here, Verse 8, they were claiming that they had no sin. I think it's interesting, could be, that sin here in the language, no sin, is singular, okay? It could be that there were people in this fellowship that were claiming that they had no more sin in their nature, okay? In other words, the sin principle 
for them had been eradicated, if you will. So that there were people here at the time in which John was writing who were claiming to be in fellowship with God, but at the same time they were claiming that, they were claiming in their own heart that they had no sin. In other words, the sin principle no longer lived within them. They no longer struggled with sin. So that could be the thought that it just had been taken away, okay? Other scholars seem to say, again, look at verse 8, that phrase, if we say we have no sin, doesn't so much mean that you have no longer any sin left in you, but that you have no longer any guilt in your sin. The thought would be is it's not so much a denial of sin itself, but it's a denial of having any responsibility for sin in how you live. In other words, they're not guilty of sin at all because they've reached a certain status in their walk with God. It very well could be understood that the Gnostics and their elevated understanding of knowledge, that their sin nature had been eradicated by God and claimed, they claimed again, as I mentioned, a form of sinlessness. In other words, we, they would have said, have been given a superior nature to other man. And as such, we are sinless beings. Or at least they might say that some have attained to that. In fact, the thought would be we are already made perfect. We have made it. Now, this doesn't just have ramifications for us. There are people today who I know who still believe that. There are certain forms of Wesley's or Wesleyanism, Methodist church, who believe that you can come to a place in your spiritual life where you no longer struggle with sin. There are some forms in the Nazarene church that believe in their view of sanctification that you can get to a place in your walk with God, maybe you've met people like that, who believe that they no longer sin. They've reached a status, they've reached a plateau where they're not battling it anymore. I've encountered people in my own Christian experience from the charismatic persuasion that teach and believe a second work of grace after salvation. There's salvation that's experienced, but when we sing grace unmeasured, right, on the screen, they're thinking about it in another way. They're thinking about it as a second work. And if you have received that second work, then you no longer struggle with sin. They can live without sinning. In fact, if you've ever met someone like that, it appears to be very genuine. In fact, in charismatic theology, they call it the full surrender. I've met people who have fully surrendered their whole life to God and no longer struggle with sin. There are some people who describe it different. They call it a second blessing or they call it a release of the Spirit. In other words, it, they use it as a means by which sin can be dealt with once and for all. And I really believe, you know, it's not really funny because it can be a snare to some sincere, spiritually-minded Christians who would long to be more like Christ and who would love to be lifted beyond sin and temptation. I mean, wouldn't you? Huh. I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, what if you no longer battled anymore? In fact, I had a guy in this flock tell me that not long ago he was in his packing shed and two ministers walked in and they wanted to meet this particular guy in our church. 
and they were representing a particular ministry. And the one guy introduced my friend to another guy, and they said, what's unique about this guy is that he is wholly sanctified. And my friend said, man, you made it. You made it. I mean, in other words, and he was being facetious there when he said you made it, but the guy introduced him to him as a guy who had been wholly sanctified. So listen, when John approaches this, and he's talking about fellowship, and he's talking about light, and he's talking about walking in the light, he says, as you begin to walk in the light, listen, you're going to discover your sin, will you not? In fact, the scripture doesn't teach those false views. Look what the word of God says. Look at it in verse 8. It says there, if we say we have no sin, we, what? Deceive ourselves. In fact, what the word means there in verse 8, when it talks about deceive ourselves, the thought is they're self-deceived. In other words, not only have these false teachers deceived their listeners, but they themselves have become self-deceived. I mean, this is just a clear denial of Scripture that declares that none is righteous and that all have, what? Sinned. We will never leave sin completely in this life, which is why we're waiting for glory, okay? But not only are they self-deceived, look what John says in verse 8. He says, we de- he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In other words, those who deny the sin principle have never received God's truth. Now, I, you know, sometimes maybe we'll find out in heaven. I don't know if some of these stories you hear about Spurgeon are true. But I read this one, that it was said that Spurgeon once met a man who claimed to be without sin. And he was intrigued by that. And so he invited, did Spurgeon, this man home to him for dinner. And after hearing his claims, he picked up a glass of water and he threw it into the man's face. And the visitor, this man that came, was highly indignant and expressed himself forcefully to which Spurgeon, uh, you know, forcefully to Spurgeon about his lack of courtesy, to which Spurgeon replied, ah, you see, the old man within you is not dead. He had simply fainted and could be revived with a glass of water. (laughs) It's interesting. You know, it came out at that point. Now, what's interesting about John's declaration here is it's applicable today to those who deny the guilt of sin. And, and, and I, I don't have time for this, but I mean, there are people today who deny sin on psychological levels or on physiological levels or for social reasons, and they excuse it as they're not responsible. I mean, you know this, that we've become a nation of victims, I can only cite a few. A man was shot, okay, grab this, and paralyzed while committing a burglary in New York, okay? He comes into the store. He's robbing the guy. The guy behind the cash register pulls a gun out, shoots him. He's paralyzed, okay? This man who came in to rob the store recovered damages from the store owner who shot him. His attorney told a jury that the man was, first of all, a victim of society, He was driven to the crime by economic disadvantages. Now the lawyer said that he is the victim of the insensitivity of the man who shot him. And because of the man's callous disregard to the police, 
to the thief's plight as a victim, the poor criminal will be confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. The jury agreed and the store owner paid a large settlement. I mean, you get the idea. I mean, we can talk about this, but I'm telling you, people deny this stuff all the time, don't they? I mean, we've got a nation of victims and nobody's responsible for anything. It could be that the most famous one, do you remember this years back? A San Francisco man murdered a supervisor and the mayor. The mayor's name was George Moscone because here's what the man said that murdered the mayor, that he's consumed too much junk food, especially Hostess Twinkies. I'm not joking, okay? He claimed that the Twinkies made him act irrationally and thus the famous Twinkie defense was born. And a lenient jury bought the line and produced the verdict of voluntary manslaughter rather than murder. And they ruled that the junk food resulted in, quote, diminished mental capacity, which mitigated the killer's guilt. So, so listen, you could either say you're sinless or you can just say, I'm not guilty for anything and I'm not responsible for anything. You remember years back, some of the younger ones won't remember, when gang members in Los Angeles beat truck driver Reginald Denny almost to death before TV cameras. And a jury acquitted them of all but the most minor charges, deciding that they were caught up in, quote, the mayhem of the moment and not responsible for their actions. I mean, this is the society in which we live. And there were, now, now you can spiritualize it in, fall, in 1 John. Because what they were saying is they've reached super knowledge and that they therefore didn't either have the sin nature or what I do physically in the body didn't matter as long as I've been made spiritually whole. But this stuff goes on all the time. I think the one that I laughed the hardest was is this guy's walking on the roof in Los Angeles of an L.A. Unified School District, okay? He's walking on top of the roof. He's burglarizing this school like at 2 in the morning. And he didn't know it, but he stepped on a skylight and he fell all the way down through the roof and he broke both of his legs and he sued LA Unified School District and he received a large settlement for it while he's on the property stealing stuff from the school. I mean, this stuff happens all the time. I grew up with a a comedian. Did you ever watch him, Flip Wilson? He said the what? The devil made me do it. My point is, nobody's responsible for anything. And it is almost entirely possible today in America to commit the most notorious crime and get off scot-free simply by blaming some imaginative mental or emotional disorder that makes you not responsible for your actions. So here's what John does first. He denounces a heresy. He says, if we say we have no sin, watch this, and I can add to this, by nature, by guilt, or by act, John says we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's the heresy denounced. Secondly, though, there's a truth declared. There's a truth declared. Look at it in verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins. Stop there just for a second. This, of course, is declared over against those who say they have no sin. Okay? John says, no, no, here's the truth. It's not that you don't have sin. Here's what he says. If you're really a believer, which is kind of a funny way to say it, isn't it? You're going to confess your sin. You're going to agree with God about your sin. In other words, it's proper, watch this, not to deny sin 
but to admit your sin. So watch this. In the context here, confession of sin, if you can grasp this, is a means to moving towards the light. Okay? It is to confess our sinful thoughts, our words, our actions, and our attitude that is contrary to what God has revealed to be true in His will. So to confess our sin is to admit our guilt and agree with God that we have sinned against Him. And obviously, confession must be accompanied by repentance. Let me see if I can explain this a little bit more because I think it would transform your life if we understood this. Look again at verse 9. You've seen this a hundred times. If we confess our sin, that word confess is just simply the Greek word homo legeo, okay? It, it, it just simply means to say the same thing. To say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin, okay? In other words, believers here are those who confess their sins and agree with God about their sin. In other words, they acknowledge their sin, they acknowledge its reality, and affirm that it is a transgression of His law and a violation of His will. Now, I mean, just the simple truth is, I'm standing up here as, as a pastor here, right? I mean, the truth is, I sin all the time. I sin all the time. And I sin in more ways than I could even probably quite understand, right? There must be more times where that I'm, a, I'm offending God than I even know it. But the truth is, if you're a believer, here's what a believer looks like. You are ever moving towards the light. That's true fellowship. You are ever moving towards moral truth. You are ever moving towards the truth of God revealed in His Word. You as a consistent pattern of life don't want to be in the darkness. You're putting yourself around the light. You're putting yourself around the truth. You're putting yourself in paths and patterns of obedience. And watch this. The closer you get to the light, <laughs> this is true, the more you see your own what? Sin. You say, well, Scott, that might be me. Well, if that's you, then you're a believer. Okay? Remember, John's writing to give you assurance. And assurance doesn't look like perfection. Assurance sees that the closer you come to the light, the greater your imperfections that you see. And when you see that, watch this, rather than cover your sin, you what? You confess your sin. So the truth is, is as Scott Booker led us this morning in communion, it's like, Lord, it, it's me again. <laughs> and, and I've sinned again. And I'm in need of your grace even today. Okay? Now, one popular, I need to explain this, and I, you talk to me afterward, okay? Because there's a lot to untie here, okay? One popular but erroneous view of confession is that, is that believers are forgiven only those sins they confess. I need to make this clear, okay? In other words, you're only forgiven those sins that you confess. If that were correct, it would mean that unconfessed sins would remain with you until the judgment seat of Christ 
at which time you will have to give an account for all those iniquities. But the truth, that's, the truth is that's not the case in Scripture. No one, no one will ever enter heaven with a list of unconfessed sins still hanging over his head. Why? Because the finished work of Jesus Christ completely covers all those sins of those who believe, including that those that remain unconfessed. Let me, let me hang with me on this. This is important. Jim Elif, one theologian, said that the blood of Jesus, he said, unfailingly cleanses the believer from his sin at all times. Listen to this. There could be no sin that the blood does not cover, confessed or unconfessed. And though our sins were taken care of in the cross of Christ and by his blood being spilled for us, it is applied immediately in time, here's what he said, to every sin we commit the nanosecond that we commit it. Now, I know some of you are thinking, whoa, wait, 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 wait. But you're saying, but Scott, last week you said in verse 7 that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So here's the question this morning. If those, listen, who walk in the light have every single sin ever committed, which would defile you, and make you unfit for fellowship with God, cleansed by the blood of Jesus, then now why must I confess my sin to God? That's a fair question, isn't it? I mean, if I said last week that every single sin you've ever committed, past, present, and future, verse 7, where the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin, then why now must I, if I'm walking in fellowship, confess my sin? Listen, it's very important to recognize that biblical forgiveness runs alongside two trajectories, okay? You've got to understand this, okay? Let let me see if I can explain it for you. The Bible teaches that all sin, past, present, and future, is forgiven through faith in the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, our eternal destiny is sealed and set at the moment of justifying faith, okay? Now, our depth of intimacy and fellowship and joy is certainly affected, okay, adversely when we fail to confess and even repent of daily sins, but our eternal destiny has already and forever been determined. In other words, Sam Storms put it this way. He said, we must recognize the distinction between the eternal forgiveness of the guilt of sin that is ours the moment we embrace Jesus in faith and the temporal forgiveness of sin that we receive on a daily basis that enables us to experience the happiness of intimacy with the Father when we confess our sin. So what he did there is he put it along those two tracks, right? That when you think of biblical forgiveness... There is eternal forgiveness. That moment when you came to Christ, that moment when he opened your heart by faith, that moment when you confessed him as Lord and Savior, 
in that transaction, God Almighty gave you, extended to you, eternal forgiveness. That's why we say that your past, present, and future sins are forgiven, correct? Positionally speaking. But then Storms talks about a temporal forgiveness that we have in relationship with our God. Let me see if I can change the view a little bit. You have, on the one aspect, judicial forgiveness. That's where we understand God as a judge. He has judicially, if you will, declared us full and complete and extends ultimate forgiveness to us. But then there is what we can call a parental forgiveness where we don't meet God as judge, we meet God as a father that involves our intimacy. So when you think of biblical forgiveness, you've got to see it on those two tracks, if you will, okay? There is eternal forgiveness, then there's temporal forgiveness. We've got to confess that sin. There's what you would call judicial forgiveness, where he forgave you all your sins, but then there's parental forgiveness, whereas he's our heavenly father. We violated him, and 1 John will say now that we must confess our sins. So John says here, if you see it there in verse 9, if we confess our sins. You say, well, what happens when we confess our sins? Now, you would think with me, what's he talking about here if we confess our sins? I don't think John's talking about judicial forgiveness. No, we've already have that. We've already are cleansed in the blood of Christ. He's talking about parental forgiveness. He's talking to us as believers. What happens when you start moving towards the light? What happens as you get closer to God, you begin to see your own sin? Then this, you've got to agree with God. You've got to confess your sin. You say, but I thought all of our sins were already forgiven. They are judicially. But you have a relationship with God that would actually tell you now in verse 9 to confess your sin to God. If you do that, look what it says in verse 9. He is faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins. Okay? Let me just talk just for a moment. What, what do you mean forgive? Okay, I don't want to always just like talk in words and we forget that we're just using words and forgive, a fiume in the Greek, okay? It means to release. That's what it means. If you confess your sin, God forgives you. What, well, what does that mean? What do you mean he forgives you? He releases you, okay? He releases that sin is what the word means. It means to let go is the thoughts. In other words, if you as a believer agree with God that, hey, this is wrong. My attitude was wrong. My action was wrong. I spoke a wrong word. I confess that to you, God, and maybe to somebody else. The promise of God is that he will release you and he will no longer hold that against you. In other words, when you confess your sin, God absolves you from the punishment, if you will, judicially, but he also restores you parentally, if you will, as a father. I think it's interesting. In the Old Testament, the verb for forgiveness means to lift, is the thought. It means to carry. And it portrays sin, if you will, being carried from the sinner and taken away. You say, well, but what is forgiveness? It is an act of God releasing the sinner, if you will, 
not only from judgment and the penalty of sin, but releasing you, if you will, of that parental relationship that you have with God that might get in the way and block our fellowship with Him. In other words, God will forgive you. He will remit your sin and blot them out. He will hurl them into the deepest part of the sea. You say, well, if I do that, he will really just let go of it? Yeah. And you know what he does? He calls on two guns here, two big guns of of God's attributes. Look, to bolster the argument. He says, if we confess our sins, it says here in verse 9 that he is faithful And he's righteous to forgive us our sins. He's faithful. Now, what does that mean that he's faithful? It it just it could mean that God is just simply faithful to his unchanging character. But more likely here, in this context, when faithful is used in Scripture, it describes the character of God, and it's usually connected to what we call his covenant promises. Okay? In fact, look back just a few books in Hebrews. Let me show you this. He's faithful to his promise. Look back to Hebrews 10. This is really important. In Hebrews 10, 23, here the writer is exhorting us in Hebrews. And he says in 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession, he says, of our hope without wavering. For he who promised, here's the key, is faithful. In other words, when you talk about the promises of God, he's faithful. He's faithful to his promises. Look over at the next chapter in chapter 11, in verse 11, where it says, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had what? Promised. So when it calls on God's faithfulness, it's linking it to a promise of God. He is faithful in his word to his promises. Now, one other scripture. You say in this context, look over at Jeremiah 31. Look in the Old Testament to a promise of God in the Old Testament where here he is faithful. But in Jeremiah chapter 31 and in 34, when it talks about that new covenant... It says, and no longer, 3134, shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. For the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. There it is. Here, his forgiveness is extended to the promise of a new covenant. So we begin to understand why God is said to be faithful to forgive our sins. He's faithful to his promise. Let me, let me just say this. If you confess your sin, he will forgive you. What does that mean? He will let go of it. He will release it. I don't think he's talking about the, the, the judicial forgiveness. You have that. But in your Christian life, you're going to sin. And you think, well, I don't want to sin. I hate sinning. But if you confess it, God is faithful. He promised in Jeremiah 31 to forgive you 
your iniquity and your sin I will remember no more. He's faithful to do what he promised to do, and he promised to forgive you. Sproul asked this question. He said, what do you do with a person who says that I've asked God to forgive me about this, but I still feel guilty? You ever done that? Have you ever prayed over the same sin multiple times? I mean, you just, you just, in fact, you're not even still committing that sin, but you look back and you just keep praying over and over. Sprawl said, I hear that statement over and over again, and I usually say to these people, if you still feel guilty, then pray to God again. But this time, don't ask him to forgive you for the sin that is haunting you. Rather, ask him to forgive you for insulting his integrity by refusing to accept his forgiveness. He went on to say, and he can probably say it sharply, who are you to refuse to forgive yourself when God has already forgiven you? In other words, listen, when God promises to forgive his people when they repent, he is not playing games. If he says he will forgive you, then he will forgive you. And if God forgives you, you are forgiven. Listen, this prayer here when it says, if you confess your sins, if it is a prayer, it's not a mantra if that you chant. It is a promise of God to forgive you. And when God promises to forgive your sins, you can trust him to do so. So here's just a funny thing about true fellowship. The closer you come to God, the more you love him, the more you want to love him. But the truth is, as Scott said, we can't even love him supremely for an hour, can we? But we want to love him. And so as you come closer, you begin to see the imperfections that come out even more. And if you're really walking in the light, then you're going to confess your sin. You're not going to conceal your sin. You're not going to cover your sin. You're going to confess it. So he calls on that attribute of God. Look, we're almost done. He says he's faithful to forgive us our sins. He says, and he also says in verse 9, that he's just, okay? He's just to forgive us our sins. And I'm going to pick that up with you next week, okay? Because that is so important because you say, well, how could a righteous God forgive me of my sin and still be holy? We'll pick it up next week. But listen to this hymn by Charles Bancroft. It's a good reminder for me. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Listen, if you're a believer, you say, what's it look like? You walk in the light. Are you perfect? No, far from perfect. The closer you get, the more you see, the more you see, the more we ought to be agreeing with God, not only with God, but even with one another, that these are issues and things that we're working towards. That's a description of a Christian. Not someone who says it, but lives different. Not someone who says they have no sin, but then sins and doesn't become accountable for it. So listen, here's what it means to have true fellowship with God. Confess your sin to him.